Well, open your Bible with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're working our way through the book of 2 Corinthians, and we're in the second half of chapter 5. And I would ask you this question, what makes you tick? That's different than what ticks you off, but what makes you tick? What gets you out of bed in the morning? What fires you up? What gets you excited? Now, you may be thinking, well, hunting, fishing. Maybe for some people it's working. They love their job. Maybe for some people it's teaching. For some people it might be painting. For some people it's nurturing others. But what really excites you? Now, of course, I'm talking in the maybe the natural realm. But are there things in the spiritual realm? Let's transition a moment. Are there things in the spiritual realm that really fire you up, that get your passions flowing? Do you get excited or motivated about ministry? We should. Every true Christian, every committed believer should be excited about ministry. You say, you might be saying, well, you're in ministry, you're in vocational ministry, you're a pastor. But all of us who are believers are in ministry. The Bible makes that very clear. We're all in ministry. So in this passage of Scripture, Paul is talking about staying motivated in ministry because it's easy to lose our passion. It's easy to leak it out and just kind of become blasé about the work of God. I think we would all agree that sincerely held beliefs should significantly affect our behavior. Sincerely held beliefs, if I really believe something, it's going to press upon how I live. Sincerely held beliefs significantly affect our behavior. If I don't really believe it, then I'll see it in my life. Paul's epistles, as you well know, usually connect doctrine in the first half of the book and then maybe we would say duty in the second half of the book. And in this passage of Scripture in 2 Corinthians, Paul uses therefores very liberally, very generously. He uses it in verse 9, verse 11, verse 16, verse 20. Now, therefores are kind of a bridge word. It's kind of a statement where you're going from maybe the explanation to the application. And that's exactly what Paul is doing in the passage we're looking at today. He's already explained the significance of what Christ has done for us in chapter 3, the ministry of death. Then through his death, now we have life. And he expounds upon it more in chapter 4 that we looked upon. So now he's making some application. I love this passage of scripture. It's one of my favorite in the Bible and in the New Testament, certainly here in 2 Corinthians. So Paul is making application. What God has done for us should motivate us to do something for God, is really what he's saying. What God has done for us should motivate us to do something for God. What is Christian ministry? That's what we're talking about, being motivated in ministry. What is Christian ministry? Look at two verses, and we'll relook at the text, but verse 11 and then verse 20. Paul says in verse 11, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Verse 20, he says, now then we are ambassadors for Christ. As God were pleading through us, we implore you to be reconciled to God. Now this passage is telling us that 
Christian ministry is persuading sinners to become reconciled to God. Now, that may not be a whole or complete definition of the ministry, but it certainly is a weighty part of ministry. Ministry involves persuading people to come to Christ and to lay their burdens down and to be saved. That's certainly a major thrust of ministry. Now, we understand we cannot coerce or force people to come to Christ. If we could, we should dispense with this service and all head over to the gym and build some big bulging biceps so we can twist people's arms and make them come to Christ. But we can't force people, we can't coerce people to come to Christ. We have to use God-given means, the Word of God, prayer, the Holy Spirit's help to show people their need for Christ. Paul communicates that to us. I see in this text that we've read today three powerful reasons we should be motivated about Christian ministry. Note them with me. In verses 9 through 13, he talks about the coming judgment. The coming judgment. And then in verses 14 through 17, he talks about his constraining love. And then in the last verses, our glorious message or our compelling message. So let's kind of break it down. Let's look at verses 9 through 13. Read these verses. Therefore, we make it our aim. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, we may be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in his body according to that which he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. So Paul shares three weighty statements, I think, of why he was living for God and how he stayed motivated in ministry. The first thing he says, I want you to notice in verse 9, he says, we aspire. We aspire. Literally, he says, we make it our aim. We make it our aim, or we make it our ambition is how it's translated in some other Bible. I think if you have an old King James, he says, we labor, but they all are communicating the same thing. We labor, we make it our ambition. It is our aim that we will please God with our life. Let's take that word ambition, because that's the word that's used here. There is selfish ambition, and there is honorable ambition that pleases the Lord. And most of the time when we think about someone who's ambitious, we think of someone who's narcissistic, they're egocentric, they're ruthless in getting what they want, whether it be power or prestige or money or whatever. That's the idea that we think of when we think of the word ambitious, that they're willing to sacrifice their character to get what they want, okay? So that's human ambition, that's the way the lost world describes ambition. But that's not what Paul is talking about right here. That's the opposite of what we would call sanctified ambition. When Paul says we make it our aim or it is my ambition or we labor to please God, he's talking about a sanctified ambition, something that is honorable and it's for God's glory. Now, the fact is, most of us are motivated about some things. That's why I asked you the question, what kind of fires you up? What gets you excited? 
And most of the time, if we would put as much drive into our Christian service as we do into our recreational or our financial pursuits, what an impact it would have upon the world, what an impact the gospel would have upon the world if we were ambitious for God. I had a roommate and a friend who was wicked smart, who was very persuasive. We traveled on a summer team together. Plus, he was handsome, he was athletic, and was all wrapped in a charismatic personality. This guy really had it all. I mean, we all felt that way. After he graduated, he went to Harvard. And he graduated first in his class from Harvard Business School with an MBA, which is considered probably still the most prestigious degree in America, an MBA from Harvard Business. Right after that, he went to work in Manhattan in New York City, Manhattan Island, for an international banking firm. And it wasn't very long, he started rising to the very creme la creme, the very top. And he was traveling around the country and around the world, putting international banking deals together, and he was making loads of money. He was talented, he was gifted, he was passionate, he was driven. His brother was also a friend of mine. He's still a missionary in South America. And unfortunately, my roommate drifted away from the Lord and his Christian commitment over the years, same age as me. And I have often wondered what the impact would have been if my friend would have directed his enormous talent and his ambition into the Lord's work the way his brother did. His brother is not as bright a shining star as he is. I can tell you, he's probably the wealthiest individual I've ever known. He was so successful in that realm because he was ambitious, he was gifted, he was talented, and God blessed him, maybe we would say. But I've often thought, and probably you have as well, if people who are so driven and ambitious would have directed their talents and ambition for the Lord, what an impact the gospel would have made in the world. And Paul is saying, I am ambitious for God. I have a sanctified aim and glory. I labor, he says. And he says the reason is because verse 10 now, not only do we aspire, but we will appear. We all may not be ambitious for the Lord, but we will all appear before the Lord. That's what he tells us in verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one, that everyone may receive the things done in his body in this life according to that which he hath done, whether it be good or whether it be bad. We aspire, hopefully, we're motivated about ministry, and we must appear before the Lord. And now is the time to prepare. <laughs> we don't do it after this life. Now is the time to prepare for what we call the judgment seat of Christ. And of course, that's what this is talking about. The judgment seat of Christ is that future judgment for Christians. And you've heard me explain many times. The two great judgments in Scripture are the judgment seat of Christ, JSC, the great white throne, the GWT. This is a judgment for Christians. This is a judgment of the lost. This is a judgment of dedication. This is a judgment of damnation. This is found in 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5, Romans 14. This is found in Revelation chapter 20. So we're not talking about this over here, the great white throne judgment. We're talking about the judgment for believers. Every one of us here that profess to be a believer will stand before God and answer for our deeds, our works, and the motives behind them. 
And we will receive reward or we will suffer loss, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We'll be evaluated and we'll be rewarded for our works and for our motives. And Paul says, I am ambitious for the Lord because I don't want to stand before the Lord with shame. I don't want to have to drop my head and have my hands hang down by my side. I want to be excited. I want to have joy in my faith because I'm going to receive a war. He said, I don't want to be ashamed when I stand before the Lord. I want to have confidence, not shame. You know, in this life, it's easy to give lip service. It's easy to go through the motions, even in Christian ministry, without our heart being sincere. We just kind of go through the motions, whether it be singing or serving in some capacity. Well, the judgment seat of Christ, it's a time of general revelation. It's a time of great revelation where we will discover, certainly God will discover, why we did what we did. Did we do it for God's glory? Did we do it for selfish ambition? Did we do it for the good of others? Why did we do what we did? What was the motive behind it? That's what the judgment seat of Christ is about, is what we did and why we did what we did. Paul says, I don't want to be shamed. I don't want to be embarrassed. The bema seat, that's the word that's used here in the Greek language, the judgment. The bema seat was something that the Corinthians were very familiar with. The ancient world was very familiar with. We often call it the bema seat of Christ. The bema seat in the Greco-Roman world was where legal decisions were handed down by the judge, by the courts. Legal decisions were handed down. They would sit in the bema seat and hand down that decision. It was where Olympic game awards were handed down. They understood it. Awards are handed out. Judgments are handed out. And it's called the judgment seat of Christ. We don't confuse it with the great white throne judgment. We understand that's where we will be evaluated and rewarded. And Paul says, that's why I'm motivated. I'm motivated because someday I will stand before the Lord and I will be judged. Look at the third testimony, the weighty testimony that Paul says in verses 11 through 13. He says in these verses, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God and I trust are also well known to you in your consciences. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but we give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearances and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. Paul's talking about the coming judgment. So he is ambitious for the Lord. And he knows he's going to appear before the Lord. And now he says, this is why we persuade men. Notice that kind of a unique phrase there. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. Now, that's not kind of a phrase that we like to hear we're not sure exactly what it means knowing therefore the terror of the lord a modern translation of that word terror is the word fear you could say having a healthy fear of the lord or you could translate it reverence having a holy reverence for the lord we persuade men having a fear of the lord having a a reverence for the lord we are busy about his work understanding 
who he is, and that someday we will answer to him. We are busy about his work. We don't serve the Lord out of dread or horror. That's not why we serve the Lord. We understand he loves us. We're his children. We get that. Nonetheless, it should not minimize or negate the awesomeness of our responsibility, the awesomeness of the coming occasion of the judgment seat of Christ. We don't quake in fear of him, but we respect and we are motivated because of his great love and what he's done in our behalf. The best way to be prepared for the judgment seat of Christ, he tells us right here, is to have a clear conscience and to walk in the Spirit. Paul had a clear conscience before the Lord. That's what he says in verse 11. But we are well known to God. God knows me. God knows my conscience. God knows what I'm doing. God knows why I'm doing it. We are well known to God, and I also trust are well known to you, he says. We don't commend ourselves again to you, but we give you every opportunity to boast in our behalf that you may have an answer for those who are boasting in appearance. What is he saying here? The best way to be prepared for the judgment seat of Christ is doing what we know we're supposed to do based upon the word of God and walking in the spirit. We walk in the spirit. We don't fulfill the lust of the flesh, the Bible says. Paul had a clear conscience before the Lord, and he's saying, I have an integrity before you as Corinthians. Clear conscience before God, I know what you know about me when I was with you. He was not like some of his opponents. That's what he's saying in verse 12 and 13 here. I'm not like some of the Judaizers that bragged about their credentials. Remember, he talked earlier in this book about they had brought letters of commendation, these lofty, glowing letters of commendation. He says they brag about their credentials. They brag about their converts. He says, you know how we labored amongst you. Paul is telling us that we need to walk in the Spirit, keep a clear conscience, serve God. Look at verse 13. But if we are beside ourselves, that's an old English word of, if we appear to be crazy, the British would say it that way, you're beside yourself. You're acting like a crazy person. You're outside of yourself is another way of saying it. If we appear to be crazy, he says in verse 13, it is for God. And if we appear to be sane or sound mind, it's for you. Let's think about that verse for a moment. Paul was not going to be deterred by the criticism of people. You've heard people say, well, they're such a religious fanatic. Man, they're like crazy about their religion. And all they can talk about is God or all they can talk about is being saved. You know, that's the idea. Paul is saying, if we appear to be crazy, that all we can do is talk about God and try to bring people to Christ, that's okay with me. That's okay. I think that's so far removed from how most of us live that we can't hardly even appreciate it. Paul says, I don't care if I appear to be crazy about my faith and my love for the Lord. Let people think what they want to think. Do you know that D.L. Moody was first called Crazy Moody? In the beginning, because he left his business career, his successful business career, to become a Sunday school worker in the slums of Chicago, that his colleagues called him Crazy Moody, and he did some, what we would think are, you know, doing some big things to get kids to come to Sunday school. 
He did some things that would be similar to the bus ministry promotions, maybe of the 70s and, and 80. But they called him Crazy Moody. Now, time has proven that his decision to leave his business career was a wise one because God used D.O. Moody to bring hundreds of thousands, probably well over a million people to Jesus Christ in his campaign. He went on from becoming a Sunday school preacher to becoming a worldwide known evangelist. And Moody Bible Institute is a result of that. And even a Bible Institute in college on the East Coast is a result of his labors. He may have been hammered and laughed at and initially mocked, but now we honor the legacy of D.L. Moody, who was called Crazy Moody, or in Paul's terms, he was beside himself in his love for Jesus Christ. The British author, Rudyard Kipling, once met General Wilkes Booth. You know those two names. You probably are more familiar, maybe, with Kipling, it just shortens the name, the author who wrote throughout his life, famous British author. General Wilkes Booth is the founder of the Salvation Army. General Booth sailed, traveled widely to America. He was out of England and Australia and other places, establishing the Salvation Army. The Salvation Army in its conception and for many, many, many years was just that. They were fanatics about spreading the gospel, preaching the gospel to the poor, to the street people, uh, to the down and outers in England and all over. They were a gospel machine. Salvation Army. Well, Kipling and Booth were boarding the same ship from England. And Booth was being sent off by a raucous group of recruits, Salvation Army recruits, and they were famous for their tambourines. They had their tambourines going, and they were singing to the top of their voice, and they were sending General Wilkes Booth off to America, and Kipling was getting on the same ship, and they were waiting on the dock with others, and this raucous display of Christian fervency was going on. And after they boarded the boat, Kipling told Booth, how offended he was at that display that seemed so inappropriate for the gospel and for the church. Of course, Kipling had, although his grandparents on both sides were Methodist ministers, I don't think he had much of any religion at all and affiliation at all. And after he kind of dressed down Booth and insulted him for those converts and those send-off that he was receiving, this is what Booth said. He said to him, young man, because Booth, he had a long beard. He was an old man at this point. He says, young man, if I thought I could win one more soul to Jesus Christ by standing on my hands and beating a tambourine with my feet, I would learn to do it. He was saying, I will do whatever I can. I will do whatever is possible to bring people to Jesus Christ. You may think I'm a fanatic. You may think the, the Salvation Army is a bunch of crazies or they're beside themselves, but we do it for God's glory. Now, we may not agree totally with maybe how they went about things, but you can't argue with the fact they didn't care what people thought. They were going to bring the gospel to people. So Paul is saying, if the world thinks I'm beside myself, I'm okay with that. I'm going to be a fanatic for Jesus. That's what he's saying. 
So the first thing he tells us is about his motivation for the ministry, verses 9 through 13, the coming judgment. The second thing he tells us in verses 14 through 17 is his constraining love. His constraining love. Look again at our text. Verses 14 and 15 says it should control us, this love. For the love of Christ compels us, constrains us. Because we judge this way, that if one died for all, then all are dead, have died with him. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Let's stop reading there. Paul is saying this constraining love, his constraining love should control us. Christ's substitutionary death motivated Paul to action. It motivated Paul to action. Christ died for all who died in him. Now you get what he's saying. Christ died for all of those who are in faith in Jesus Christ. It's the deep principle we call identification, being identified with Christ. When he died, we died with him to our sin. When he rose from the grave, we rose with him to a newness of life. The Bible teaches that over and over. It's called identification with Christ. And that's what Paul is saying. Because we died and have been risen with Christ now, we have the power to live for him. Paul wanted them to know that his old self-centered life was finished and he was all out desirous of living for God's glory. It should control us. The love of Christ should control us. Understanding that we're in him, we're identified with Christ, we're before the throne of God should constrain us. That kind of love should constrain us to to live for him. Second thing he says, it will change us. It should control us. It will change us. Verses 16 and 17. These are familiar verses. He says in verse 16, therefore from now on, Going forward, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. He met Jesus, and now Jesus is gone. And now he says in verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, verse all of us should know, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. It should control us, this love. It will change us, this love. Being in Christ includes a number of things. And Paul says we are in Christ. It includes a number of things. It includes our security in Christ. Our salvation can't be lost. It includes the believer's acceptance by Christ. Christ is pleased with us. The Father is pleased with us because he sees us in the righteousness of Christ. The believer's participation in the divine nature. We have the Holy Spirit within us. Christ in you, the hope of glory, the Bible says. Now, look what he says in verse 17, that we're a new creation. Every one of us who have been born again, even though we may look somewhat similar to what we did before we got saved, but we're a new creation on the inside. We're new creatures. We've been regenerated. We've been born again. Titus 3, 5 says, Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but by the washing of the Spirit and the regeneration of the Spirit. He regenerates us. We're born again. We're new creatures. We're new creation by knowing Christ. That means sin is present, but it no longer controls us. Yeah, we still struggle with sin, but sin doesn't control us. 
And what does he say here, really, in verse 16? As new creatures, we have a different perspective towards others. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. We don't just look at the outward appearance of people. We don't look at just the flesh. We have a different perspective on people. We see through Christ's eyes, he's saying. Others are not friends or enemies. They're not Democrats or Republicans. They're not customers or co-workers. They're, not, they're sheep that need a shepherd, he's saying. He says, I look at the world through the lenses of Jesus Christ as lost sheep needing a shepherd. I don't make all the other differentiations that they're Gentiles or Jews or whatever way we would divide people up today. He said, I just look at them as lost sheep needing a shepherd, sinners needing a savior. Look at the third thing Paul tells us, keeps us, should keep us motivated for ministry. And that's in verses 18 through 21. We have a compelling message, our compelling message. Look at verse 18. He says, now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us this word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God is speaking through us. God is pleading through us. We implore you, in Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Paul has two thoughts here. We are messengers of reconciliation. We are ambassadors of peace. He tells us. You ever think of yourself as a messenger of reconciliation? Reconcile is a key word in verses 18 through 21. It's used five times. Reconciliation or reconcile is mentioned five times in these few verses. And it means to bring into harmony. It means to win over. So if we're reconciling people to Jesus Christ, we're winning them over to Jesus Christ. We're bringing them in harmony to Jesus Christ. That's what reconciliation means. The fact of the matter is man is in rebellion against God, but through the cross, God's face was turned away from them because of their sin, because of our sin, but through the cross, we're reconciled to God and God is reconciled to us. God's face is now turned towards us. It's been turned away from us, the Bible tells us. And now it's turned back. God's turned back to the world in love. We could say it this way. God was reconciled to the world to the cross, but the world must now be reconciled to God. And that is our announcement. Our announcement is Jesus Christ paid for the sins of mankind. God has looked back now towards the world, not in wrath, but in love. And now accept that love. Be reconciled to God. God has turned to you. Turn to him now. That's the whole idea of reconciliation. By the way, a second key word in this passage, verse 19, is imputation. Another theological word, reconciliation, imputation. Imputation is a banking term used in the secular world, secular Greek world. Imputation not only is a banking world, it means to put to one's account. Probably every one of us as adults have put money into someone else's account, maybe specifically our children maybe our grandchildren, 
That's the whole idea right there. It means to transfer to one's account. So when it's used in the biblical sense, it's saying that the sins of the world were imputed to Christ, the Bible says. The sins of mankind were put on Christ. He suffered for the sins of the world. And the righteousness of Christ, he lived a perfect life. He was God in the flesh. His righteousness has been imputed to us. It's been transferred to our account. So now when God sees us, he doesn't see us in our sin. He sees us in the righteousness of Christ. That's the whole idea of imputation. I guess I have to ask you, has that transfer taken place in your life? Have you experienced the righteousness of Christ? Have you transferred your sins to him that he died for on the cross? So we are messengers of reconciliation. We're simply telling people, the message that they can be reconciled to God, that God has done everything possible for them to have eternal life and to be reconciled to a holy God, all they have to do is accept it. We're messengers of reconciliation, and we are ambassadors of peace. Put that into the context of what Paul was writing here to the Corinthians. In the Roman Empire, there were two kinds of provinces, senatorial provinces and imperial provinces. Senatorial and imperial. A senatorial province, these were peaceful with an established relationship with Rome, such as in Corinth. In other words, they didn't fight Rome when Rome was conquering the Mediterranean world. They made an alliance with Rome, and they said, we want what you have. We'll pay taxes. You build this road. You can provide the post office. You protect us with your army. You provide us with food and stuff and other things. They, they were a senatorial province that made an alliance with Rome. They were not at war with Rome. They wanted, they wanted an agreement with Rome. And an imperial province like Judea, Canaan, was someone that had to be conquered by the Roman army. And there was often rebellions being fomented in those imperial provinces so Rome sent out ambassadors ambassadors to report back to Rome what was going on and to keep the peace and to stop the rebellion from taking place through negotiation an ambassador was sent to an imperial province where they worked to ensure peace and that's what this world is. This world is an imperial province. Men are always in rebellion against God, fomenting rebellion against God every generation. But we, he says, are God's ambassadors. We're sent to an imperial province that is in rebellion against God, doing our best to convince individuals to lay down their arms to surrender and make peace with the king of kings. That's our job as ambassadors, to convince people, lay down your arm, surrender to God. It's in your own best interest. We're ambassadors of peace. Those are a couple lofty titles that you and I have here today. We're messengers of reconciliation. We're ambassadors of peace, Paul says. You got a big job. Heavy responsibility, all of us do. God has not declared war but peace now through his son. But someday he will declare war, and for many it will be too late. He will declare war on this world and its rebellion. But we're here to proclaim peace, peace through the son. Lay down the arms against the king of kings. 
submit to him, enjoy the prosperity that comes along with his rule. Ministry is not easy. And we're all in ministry, I remind you. Ministry is not easy. And it's easy to lose our motivation. It's easy to lose sight of the goal. It's it's easy to lose our inspiration. Why we're living this Christian life and doing our service unto God. We have to remember that there is a coming judgment. We have to remember there is a constraining love. We have to remember that we have a compelling message. So we stay motivated in ministry and not lose sight of what God has called all of us to do in this world as ambassadors, as messengers. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. What a rich text. What a compelling, motivating text of scripture. And we ask that you'll help us to see the end goal and not to drop out, not to lose heart, not to faint along the way, but to stay motivated in our service for you and what you've called us to do. Preach reconciliation. Be ambassadors of peace. Lord, we know that someday we'll answer to you for our life and for why we did what we did. We ask that you'll help us to have the purest and most noble of motives in our service for you. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, maybe you're here today and you're not sure about your own eternity. You're not sure if Christ is your Savior and heaven is your home. We want you to know that. We want you to be saved. And you can do that today by praying right there in your seat. God, save me, a sinner. I can't save myself. I need Jesus. Maybe you're here today and you needed a fresh glimpse of how short this life is and how long eternity is and to stay faithful to the end. And maybe you need to pray, God, help me, help me to serve you with all my strength in the time that I have.